Well, uh, what a dramatic week it was in Congress this week as lawmakers like narrowly avoided uh, a government shutdown uh, by the skin of their teeth, right? They managed to get this done. I heard some rebellious voices in the back there. This is, this is not a political sermon. Uh, so they did narrowly avoid a shutdown. But what happens during a shutdown uh, is that you know, Democrats and Republicans, they can't agree on a budget. Uh, going forward, and it's against federal law uh, to uh, spend money, to appropriate money that has not, been, or to spend money that hasn't yet been appropriated. Uh, so the government shuts down. They can't spend uh, money anymore. And if there is a shutdown, well, what happens is that uh, many federal employees uh, get furlough, fer uh, furloughed, uh, and government services that are essential, sometimes are deemed non-essential, they get delayed, they get shut down for a period of time. Uh, current members of the military uh, don't get paid while they are on active duty. And metal, many federal employees have to continue working, but they don't get paid until after the shutdown is over, and then they get back paid. And ironically, uh, as all this is going on, uh, the senators, uh, the congressmen who could not reach an agreement, they continue to get paid. Uh, they never miss a paycheck. So, uh, you know, always looking out for number one. So. Uh, Suppose some young, charismatic revolutionary uh, entered into Congress one day uh, who had gained a large following, and, and he, he seemed to have this authority to be able to challenge a Washington, coming with the power and the authority to say, you guys are doing it wrong. What if he had the power to say to Congress, you know, if you guys can't get a deal done, then you don't get paid. The rest of them get paid, but you don't get paid. What if he challenged them like that? What if he could change the entire structure, the power center of Congress? Now, it's probably impossible that that could happen in our system of government, but this is exactly what Jesus, uh, Israel's leaders were afraid of in Jesus. Uh, here's this uh, young guy, this upstart, this charismatic uh, speaker of the word, preacher, uh, who seems to have a, a, a huge following uh, and speaks the truth, and, and people seem to love him. And he didn't agree with the way the scribes and the Pharisees were running the temple and running the religion of Judaism, uh, because it didn't appear to him like they were uh, doing the temple right or worshiping God. They were in it for themselves. And so Jesus' ideas were radical from the standpoint of these scribes and Pharisees who were in charge of the place. And, and so what they thought when they saw him was that this guy is challenging our power. And if we don't do something to stop him, he's going to topple this whole thing. And the only thing they could think of to do to stop Jesus uh, from toppling the whole thing was to kill him to protect their own authority. And so that's what we're going to see this week. Uh, last week, we talked about Jesus' triumphal entry, right? On Sunday night, Jesus uh, enters into the city of Jerusalem. He's mounted on uh, a donkey, uh, and that's a claim of authority uh, because that is what the Old Testament predicted that their Messiah would do. So he starts off claiming authority. He inspects their temple as one with authority, one who has the right to inspect the temple and see if they are doing it right. So that's Sunday night. Now, uh, on Sunday night, Mark, remember, says that Jesus went back out to Bethany. He spent the night at the home of uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And now here we are. It's Monday morning. And Jesus is going to come back into uh, Jerusalem as we pick up the account. 
And we're going to look at two episodes this morning, uh, in which Mark does in his typical sandwich story. We've seen this uh, several times. Uh, first, uh, Jesus curses the fig tree. That's the first part of the story. Then Mark interrupts that story, uh, and he tells the story of how Jesus cleared the temple, turned over the tables of the money changers. And then uh, Tuesday morning, uh, he comes back uh, again and, and recounts the story of this withered tree. And so that's what we're going to see. Uh, as we pro proceed today. And then we'll see that in the withered tree story, uh, Jesus uses this withered tree as an opportunity to teach the disciples about prayer. And so what this passage is really about is the coming consequences uh, to Israel for not receiving the Messiah, uh, for being corrupt politically, uh, and, and the coming judgment that Israel is going to face. And these are themes uh, that we're going to see Jesus uh, continue to expound on uh, in chapter 12, uh, in chapter 13. Uh, this is Jesus's uh, condemnation of Israel over uh, the next couple chapters. And what we want to see is even today, like fast forward 2,000 years, uh, Israel today is still suffering the consequences of the fact that it has failed uh, to recognize Jesus as uh, its Messiah. So let's start out with the cursing of the fig tree, uh, verses 12 to 14. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit of you again. And his disciples were listening. All right, so it's Monday morning. Jesus was out in Bethany, and now here they come walking back into uh, the city of Jerusalem, as we talked about last week. Here's Bethany up over the Mount of Olives, past the Garden of Gethsemane, and back into the temple. And that's, what, that's the route that they would take. And so on the way, uh, Jesus sees a fig tree, and the fig tree is in leaf. And so he thought that there might be figs on that tree, even though Mark says it's not the season for figs. So doesn't it seem a little unreasonable and irrational to you that Jesus would curse a fig tree uh, when it was not the time for figs, according to Mark? Well, I think that's an interesting question. We, we need to ask, what is going on here? Well, with most fruit trees, uh, leaves grow before the fruit before the fruit. But one interesting thing about fig trees is that figs grow before the leaves on the fig tree. So if you see a fig tree with leaves on it, that's pretty good reason to think that there are going to be figs on it since the figs are supposed to grow first. And so that was not the case with this particular tree. Uh, there should have been figs. The, the, the tree appeared to be full of promise that there would be fruit on it, uh, but there, were no, there was no fruit on it. And so uh, Jesus used this fig tree as an illustration uh, for fruitless Israel. Israel was that barren fruit tree. It had the outward appearance of religion and piety, and so there should have been fruit, and yet there was no fruit. Israel bore no fruit. And so Jesus cursed the fig tree as this coming judgment that was going to happen to Israel, which actually continues some Old Testament symbolism that we see of uh, Israel being compared to uh, a fig tree without figs. Uh, Jeremiah 8:11 is one example uh, where Jesus says, I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the fig tree, and the leaf will wither, and what I have given them will pass away. And we see it again in Micah chapter 7, verse 1. Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig which I crave. 
So again, uh, Israel is representative of this, uh, or the fig tree is representative of faithless, fruitless Israel. And Jesus' cursing represents God's coming judgment on them. Now, why would we expect Israel to bear fruit? Why would we expect them to be a blessing to the nations around them? Well, that comes right out of God's first calling Abraham into covenant with him in Genesis chapter 12. Remember, God said to Abraham, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. So Israel was supposed to be a blessing to the nations around it. But Israel failed in fulfilling that mission. And, and God would remove that blessing from Israel, not permanently, of course, and not completely. The fact that Israel exists today is clear evidence that Israel is God's chosen people. It has no reason to exist since it's no bigger than the size of New Jersey, and every nation around it has wanted to kill it over the past 2,000 years, and yet still it stands. Uh, so God hasn't removed his blessing completely, and he's not removed it permanently. There will come a day uh, when Israel does recognize its Messiah. And the way I understand scripture, uh, that's going to happen after the rapture of the church and in the tribulation period, as Romans 9 through 11 says, uh, during the great tribulation when Israel returns en masse to the Lord. Uh, and that will happen uh, one day. Uh, but that is for a future day. Uh, now Israel is still under God's judgment because it has not received its Messiah. And it's interesting uh, that we look at uh, verse 14 of this passage that we're looking at. Uh, and it says at the end of verse 14 that his disciples were listening. So obviously that sets up what's going to happen the next day, right? That they're going to come and, and they're going to see the, 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 the withered fig tree. But uh, some commentators say that they were listening means they understood, they heard and understood that what Jesus was talking about was a coming judgment on Israel. And we don't know if that's true or not, but we're going to see Jesus continue to expound on this theme of judgment against Israel uh, for rejecting him in chapters 12 and 13. All right, so that is the cursing of the fig tree. We'll return to the fig tree story uh, in a few minutes after we talk about Jesus overturning the tables of the money changers. This is 15 to 19. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den? And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how they might destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they would go out of the city. So when Jesus came to the temple the night before, during the triumphal entry, Jesus saw how they were using the temple courts. They were all set up for the commerce that was going to happen the next day. Now, this is a model of what the temple in Jerusalem looks like. So what you see here is the building itself, right? Uh, and, and here is the outer courts. These are called the courts of the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles were not allowed to go past this little knee wall here. This area outside of the temple uh, is for them. That's where they can, they can be. 
Now, why would a Gentile come to uh, the, the Jewish temple? Well, some Gentiles were actually seekers. They were seekers of God, and they would come to the temple to, to learn about God. Some were actually worshipers, worshipers of God, uh, like we see in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius was a worshiper of God. And so uh, they could come into the temple courts, but they could not come into the temple itself. Uh, that would have been uh, illegal for them. Uh, so what does that mean? Well, that means that the court of the Gentiles should have been like the best mission field the Jews ever had. This, the, the Gentiles are coming to them, and all they have to do is go out and tell the Gentiles about the wonders and the glories of God. And yet, uh, they didn't do that, as Genesis chapter 12 would have instructed them, uh, that they should be a blessing to the nations. Uh, they should have used that chance uh, to speak to these Gentiles about the one true God. But what was happening? <clears throat> Instead, of seeing this as a mission field, they saw this as a giant flea market, right? This was an opportunity for them to make a whole lot of money. And so they were fleecing people who were coming in uh, with foreign money to exchange that money for Jewish money that could be used to pay the temple tax or to buy uh, lambs for a sacrifice. So if you lived outside of Jerusalem, you probably used Roman money. And Roman money had uh, an, uh, an engraving or an inscription or a drawing or something of the Roman emperor's head on that money. Now, you couldn't use that kind of money because that Roman emperor's head uh, is another god to them. So that's idolatry. You're not allowed to use their money. You can't use Roman money to pay the temple tax or buy anything. So the Jews said, all right, what we'll do is we'll exchange that money. And they saw no problem in uh, not, uh, you know, making the people not do idolatry, but in charging you know, exorbitant interest rates in the exchanging of this money. They saw no hypocrisy in that. And nor did they see any hypocrisy in the fact that they were plotting to kill Jesus while they were exchanging money that doesn't have the Roman emperor's head on it. So it's just a testimony to us that, that you can think that you are doing God's will, and yet you have these blind spots that are so massive that somehow you can't see, and, and your life can be full of hypocrisy, even though you're doing uh, something that God likes, doesn't mean you're doing everything uh, that God's God likes. So we have to always be uh, inspecting our lives, allowing the Holy Spirit to, to look at our lives and, and surface new or sins that, that, that we're not even aware of. So this is what they were doing. And not only that, they were using this area to inspect the animals that people would bring. So if you're coming to the Passover, you're going to bring an animal that is a year old and perfect, and that is the animal you're going to sacrifice. Well, the chief priests had the right to inspect that animal to see if it truly was perfect. And they could say, you know what, that animal is not perfect. It's got a blemish. We'll sell you this lamb, but at two times what a lamb should cost. That's what they were doing. And who knows, they may have been then taking that lamb and selling it to somebody else for two times what that lamb was worth. Uh, there was all kinds of corruption going on. The Jewish authorities were like the mafia. They had their hands in everything, uh, from Caiaphas, who was the, the, the chief priest at the time, to Annas, the former chief priest, Caiaphas's father-in-law, and all the way down the line, uh, they had their hands in everything. If, if we were looking at this today, we'd call this racketeering. That's what this was. They're making a huge profit off these many visitors to Jerusalem uh, for the Passover feast. And they were using the temple mount as this shortcut to cut from one end of the city to the other. And so they're defiling the temple by walking through the temple when they shouldn't have done it. And so all of this, this area is supposed to be holy, but everything they did defiled the temple. And of course, 
Jesus saw all this, and it made him irate. And that's why he said in verse 17, uh, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. And this comes right out of the Old Testament. Jesus deliberately quoting the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7 says, Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. So there's the house of prayer part. And then Jeremiah 7:11 has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight. Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. So Jesus sees what's going on. He goes back to the Old Testament prophets who said this was going to happen, and he used those quotes that they would have known. And so by creating this, this, this place of commerce in the temple courts, uh, the Jews were earning usury from the Jews, and they were also depriving the Gentiles of the place where they should have been blessed by the Jews. And so this made Jesus irate. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturn the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Now, one thing we ought to notice is that uh, Jesus was very sensitive. He only disrupted the guilty. Uh, what we see here is that he overturned the tables of the money changers, but only the seats of those who were selling the doves. So the doves got to stay on the table in their cages. No animals were destroyed in the making of this clearing of the temple. Uh, Jesus was very careful about that. He wanted to be sure that he only judged the guilty. Now, it's really hard to imagine, right? You saw the size of that temple court and how many people could have fit on that. How could one man uh, have, have done this? How could one man have cleared the temple, stopped all this commerce, and not have been arrested by Caiaphas and Annas and all of his cronies? There are just too many people up there uh, for, not, for somebody not to stop him and arrest him. Well, the answer seems to be in verse 18. Uh, that the authorities were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. The whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And so uh, Jesus comes to the temple, and he's such a dynamic force, uh, with such power in his presence and such charisma in his presence that no one dared stop him. And yet, behind the scenes, here they begin to plot to figure out how they were going to kill him. So just like my opening uh, theoretical, uh, hypothetical, where, where, where this revolutionary stops Congress uh, from continuing and, and tears the whole thing down, this is how they see Jesus. They need to stop him or he can tear the whole system down. They could not allow this threat to their authority to continue. And the interesting thing is, is that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that he was forcing their hand. He knew that he was causing such a scene that they would have to act, that they would have to stop him, that they couldn't let him go on like this. And so Jesus had to die in Jerusalem, and he had to die at Passover. And so Jesus, from a human standpoint, from Monday to Thursday, Jesus is doing everything he can to get himself killed, because that is what he came to do. Now, of course, that's humanly speaking, right? 
From a divine standpoint, Jesus and God had planned this whole thing since the beginning of time. Uh, Jesus had to die to take away our sin. And this is how it was going to happen. This is how they planned to accomplish it. He had to live a sinless life. He had to die at the hands of the ones he came to save. And his sinless life is what qualified him to be the perfect lamb, to be the final sacrifice that God demands for sin. And so his death would satisfy the wrath of God for all who believe. But as I said last week, the timing and the place that it was going to happen, all of that was under Jesus' sovereign control. Nobody could make this happen before Jesus said it would happen. Now, verse 19 says, when evening came, they would go out of the city. And this is how Mark kind of date-stamped how the last week of uh, Jesus' Passion Week was going to proceed. They would be in the city, then they would go out of the city. And so this marks Monday night, and then he returned to Jerusalem on Tuesday morning. And on the way, the apostles saw that fig tree again that Jesus had cursed and saw that it had withered. So verses 20 and 21, as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you have cursed has withered. So verses 20 and 21 complete the story of the, of the cursing of the fig tree that was uh, verses 12 to 14. 24 hours after Jesus cursed it, the apostles take the same route back into the city again. They see the same fig tree and it has been withered from the roots up. So such is the swiftness of God's judgment. When God judges it, it is judged. And so... Uh, That is what we're going to see in in not too many years in Israel because we know that in A.D. 70, the Romans come and they destroy uh, the entire thing. It's interesting because, you know, Jesus does this and then he's going to launch into a discourse about prayer, but there's no explanation here at all for why the fig tree is withered. And so we need to read through all of Mark to understand this because, as I said, in verses 12 and 13, chapters 12 and 13, uh, Jesus is going to explain more the coming judgment on Israel. And so what he does now, though, is he turns to a discourse on prayer. Now, why turn to a discourse on prayer? It seems like a disconnect uh, from the point of the, of the fi- withered fig tree. And I think the reason is, is because if you are prayerful, uh, good things will happen. And if you pray the way God asks you to pray and, and in the ways God asks you to pray, good things uh, will happen. God will answer your prayer. But if you don't, if you're a tree uh, that appears to be fruitful and bears no fruit, this is what can happen to you. So Jesus uses this opportunity uh, about the withered fig tree to teach about prayer. Verses 22 to 26. And Jesus answered them by saying, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. So if we just read this little discourse, like especially verse 23, it seems like Jesus is saying, if you believe enough, if you don't doubt in your heart, if you pray hard enough, then what you ask for will be granted to you. 
But we have to remember that this is not Jesus's only teaching on prayer, right? So we have to take everything that Jesus taught about prayer uh, and put it together. So if you only take this verse without reading the other verses, uh, you might believe that you can ask for whatever you want and God's going to give it to you, right? Like he's just like this cosmic uh, godfather who just gives you candy all the time, right? But that is not what God's prayer or praying to God is like. And unfortunately, this is what the name it and claim it crowd uh, would have us believe, right? That, that, that if we believe hard enough, if, if we pray hard enough, we can literally speak the things that we want to have happen. We can speak those things into existence if we believe that hard enough. And the problem with that teaching, of course, is that it isn't true, right? It's not true. Uh, Jesus wasn't teaching that if you just believe enough, if you just pray enough, uh, then God is obligated to give you what you pray for. If that were true, God would be nothing more than this gumball machine, right? You put in a coin and out comes your gumball. But we have to remember that God is still sovereign, right? God does what he wills, not necessarily what we will. And so that's why Jesus taught elsewhere in prayer, that, that, about prayer, that, that our prayer must be in accordance with God's will. So, for example, Matthew chapter 6 in, in the prayer we call the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter uh, 6, verses 9 to 10. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that, that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. And in other places, Jesus taught that you have to abide in Jesus, right? And so we see that throughout John chapter 15, for example. Uh, and we know, uh, I'm sorry, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So we have this, this idea of abiding. So your will, uh, abiding in your will. And here we have uh, taught in verse 25 that, that, blank, that, that prayer is not a blank check. It, it's not, you know, you ask for whatever you want, then God gives it to you because all he uh, exists to do is to fulfill your every wish. Here we see that God requires that we have hearts of forgiveness when we come to him in prayer. Now, why is that important? Why would it be important that we have hearts of forgiveness uh, when we come to God in prayer? Well, it's pretty simple, really. It's because a forgiven sinner forgives others, right? A forgiven sinner knows how much he or she has been forgiven and can look on any offense against him or her and say, you know, compared to what I've done to God, this is nothing. And because I have the Holy Spirit, I can say to you, I, am forg I forgive you, uh, even when you've been uh, terribly wronged. Uh, that is what we can do. And we show that we're in re right relationship with God by showing that we are in right relationship with other people. And so that's why forgiveness is, is important. But forgiveness is hard, right? Even for Christians, forgiveness is such a hard thing. Uh, we have been conditioned uh, by our world and by our culture and by our own sinful nature to, to get what's ours, right? And if there's been a wrong done to us, we got to make that right. We got to redress that wrong. The justice must happen. Revenge. We have to have it, right? It's really hard for even Christians uh, to, to let things go because we want an eye for an eye. 
But forgiveness is just the opposite of that, right? Forgiveness is when we willingly allow an offense against us to go unpunished, to go unremedied. Uh, We don't seek all we can get. Uh, We're not in it uh, for ourselves, uh, seeking the revenge and justice that, that might be due. We forego all that and we show love and mercy just like Jesus showed love and mercy to us. And we trust God uh, to one day make, them, make things right somehow, but we don't take it on ourselves. Now, if anyone was ever mistreated, if anyone ever had the right to, re- to revenge or the credentials to demand honor and praise, it was Jesus Christ, right? Nobody had better credentials. He's God in the flesh. And yet, instead of demanding what was rightfully his, he laid that aside. And when they crucified him on the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, if Jesus Christ could forgive that offense against him, uh, he asks us to forgive uh, whatever offenses others commit against us. Now, this doesn't mean that if we don't forgive others, we've somehow lost our salvation. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying that forgiven people forgive people. That's what we're supposed to do as Christians. So, Uh, God's answering prayer, uh, I don't want us to come out of here thinking that it's conditional on forgiveness, like God won't answer your prayer uh, if you don't forgive somebody else. Uh, God will do whatever is in his will, so it's not that. And it's not transactional either, like God must answer your prayer if you forgive others. God's not obligated to answer prayers no matter what we do. He is still sovereign. But what it means is that our forgiving others shows that we understand how much we've been forgiven, that we recognize our own sin and that we have received God's grace and that we extend it to other, others. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can uh, forgive even when people have done wrong to us. So there are great lessons here about prayer, but we just have to be careful not to pluck it out of context and, and, and say, if we ask, we shall receive. It, it's not that simple. Uh, Jesus began his teaching here have faith in God, right? Obviously, that's a really good starting place for, for having your prayers answered. Hebrews 11.6 says that, that uh, faith is believing that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. John 15 says several times we have to abide. We talked before about how we have to be in God's will uh, and that now we see that we have to be forgiving people. And still, all of this doesn't obligate God. God is sovereign. He will do whatever he wills. But we show by this kind of faith that we are forgiving people, that we are producing fruit, uh, becoming like Jesus and leading others to him. We're not barren trees like Israel uh, seemed to be at the time. So just to summarize this passage, uh, Jesus used the fig tree as kind of an acted out parable of what is going to happen because uh, they were not bearing fruit. Judge, uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus and God are going to bring judgment against Israel for this behavior. And just like the fig tree, uh, they looked like they were going to produce fruit, but they did not. And instead, they used religion uh, to make money and protect their positions, which is why uh, Jesus cleared the temple. But for those who accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and believe and produce fruit, well, and pray in God's will, even mountains uh, can be lifted and they can be tossed into the sea for those who have that kind of faith. And so this is the kind of faith that Jesus wants us to have. He does not want us to be uh, using religion, peddling religion to make money. He wants us to be humble uh, people who love the Lord and make disciples. So let's close with a couple of applications. The first one is this. Let's not be part of the problem with religion. You know, when, when people complain about the church, outsiders complain about the church, you know, we could, if I polled you, I bet you'd all say the same things. Uh, 
the church abuses authority, right? That's one thing we're accused of all the time. Uh, the church keeps power in the hands of a few leaders and protects those leaders uh, when they do wrong, right? We see that all the time. Uh, when the church protects uh, abusers of children or whatever else, we see that happen all the time. When the church applies different standards to itself than it applies to those outside the church. In other words, hypocrisy, right? We see that all the time. And we see that the church is corrupt in handling of money. Uh, we see those things all the time, uh, and the media loves to report on things like that. Well, all of those things were going on in the temple 2,000 years ago uh, when Jesus entered during his Passion Week, and that's why Jesus condemned their behavior. But, you know, 2,000 years later, those things are still going on, and they're going on in the church even today, which is why outsiders are suspicious of religion. They, they don't trust us because they read about how churches can be in the press. So when people decry the evils of religion, uh, we have to make sure that these common allegations that we hear all the time are not true of us individually, and certainly not true of our church, of Grace Redeemer Community Church. We have to be 100% above board, uh, because if we as professing Christians uh, are corrupt with our money, or, or we, we uh, protect people in power who have done wrong, or we won't forgive, or, or if we're hypocrites, well, that's an indictment on Jesus, and it's an indictment on his church. So we have to be careful about that. But the other thing we have to be careful about is, is to remember that, that you know, the church is not the religion. Jesus is the one we follow, right? People are going to make mistakes, and people, uh, outsiders, love to point at us and say, you know, you guys, uh, you're sinners, and you've done wrong, and so your God, your Jesus, must be a false God. Well, well that's not true, is it? People are sinners. Uh, we try to represent God as best we can, but when we sin, that's not Jesus' fault. Jesus was perfect, and we have to continually point people to Jesus, not to Grace Redeemer Church necessarily or uh, to any particular preacher or pastor. We have to point people to Jesus because we are imperfect people. So when there are problems in the church, we just have to remember the problem is not with Jesus. The problem is with the people in the church. And so we, we want to be careful that we're, that we're leading or pointing people to Jesus and not to ourselves because people will always disappoint uh, other people. It's, it's in our nature as sinful people. So we have to remember that Jesus is the one we worship. Uh, we don't worship money or power or status or our building or our land or our ministries that we have going on here. None of that. We worship Jesus and we point people to Jesus. And if we do that, uh, we will uh, be people who are bearing fruit uh, and we will be people who uh, Jesus will be uh, happy to call his, his children. So let's not be part of the problem with religion. And second, when we pray, let's pray for God's will to be done. Because prayer is not imposing our will on God, right? That's not what prayer is. Prayer is not asking God to rubber stamp decisions that we've already made, right? That's not prayer either. Uh, a prayer is not about trying to put God in our debt by the good deeds we do, right? Now, I've done this, God. Now you owe me this, right? That's not what prayer is either. And prayer is not, you know, making a great show so that other people will see how pious we are and, uh, oh, he's, he's such a godly man. Did you see the way that guy prayed this morning? You know, that's not what we're trying to do either. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is allowing God to shape our hearts so that our wills conform to his will. Prayer is a time of worship of God. And so when we pray, we should be asking God to align our will with his will. And you know, perhaps the biggest component of faith is learning to trust God. 
and trust that his will is better than ours. Because it's hard for us to understand. When, 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 when we ask God for something that seems like it ought to be in his will, and God says no, we're like, God, what's going on? This has to be in your will, right? And the hardest thing, I think, is to trust that God's will is even better than ours. Uh, we have to trust that. And so when we love God supremely, we want to bring God the greatest glory. And that's what God's answers to prayer do. He answers prayers in the way that bring him the most glory. And so when we have faith in God and pray according to his will, that will set us apart from unbelievers and attract other people to God. And that same faith will produce good fruit. And so when Jesus looks at us, I just don't want him to see a barren fig tree. I want him to see us producing fruit. Uh, I want him to see us uh, leading people to Christ. And I think that, that if we actually take time, I'm going to actually challenge us this week to take time to examine our own lives, uh, to think about the fruit that we are producing here individually and as a church, and just ask, are we producing fruit or are we uh, looking like the scribes and Pharisees but actually not producing any fruit? So sometimes on Sunday morning we come here and we all look great and we act great and everything's great and everything's fine and everything's wonderful. Uh, but from uh, Monday to Saturday, are we bearing the fruit that God asks us uh, to bear? Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, I thank you for this message. We see uh, how Jesus uh, hated hypocrisy. He hated uh, how the people uh, were using the temple as a place of commerce. Uh, and that's because he loved God so much. And uh, Lord, we want to love God like Jesus loves God. And uh, we want to be people who bear fruit. Lord, we want to be people who, who don't just appear pious on the outside. We want to be people who are wholly changed on the inside and who lead other people to Christ. Lord, that is our mission here. And we pray that you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, be with us as we try to do it. In your name, we ask. Amen.